Well, I am back from Nashville, Tennessee. So before we get into King David, I just want to share a couple things about what I've been up to this week. So went back to the Christian and Missionary Alliance National Council. It's the family gathering for the Alliance. So we have international workers from all over the world that are working in different countries, coming back, telling stories, explaining what God is doing in the, in the nations. There's worship services and amazing speakers. And you get to see some of your friends from around the nation. And I know different people in different states. And so it's like a family reunion. In the midst of it, there's also some ministry that happens. And As a part of the Alliance family, we believe in four distinctives that we kind of center on. The whole movement kind of revolves around, revolves around Jesus. Of course, we love the Father and the Son as well. But Jesus at the center of things and four things about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is our Savior. He's the one who saves us from our sins. He dies on the cross. He offers us this gift, this gift of eternal life if we choose into salvation. So he's our savior. He's our sanctifier. Big Bible word for he's the one that by the Holy Spirit begins to transform us from the inside out, making us look more and more like the picture of Jesus until we finally get to heaven. So he's our sanctifier. So he's our savior, our sanctifier, our healer. And not just healer emotionally or psychologically, although God does those things. He's also our physical healer. And we still believe that God heals today. And lastly, he's our coming king. We're expecting Jesus someday to come back just as he said he would. And we're looking forward to that day and we're looking forward to it so much. It motivates us to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with everybody in our neighborhood all the way to the nations. And so this is the fourfold gospel of the Alliance. So one of the evenings we wanted to emphasize the third and that is God the healer. So a story was told from the stage from last year, and it was really fun to hear the update. And the story from last year was, I I was actually a part of a small prayer circle for a girl named Zoe. Zoe was 16 years old. She was, uh, she's a black belt in Taekwondo. She does gymnastics. She's incredibly um, fit. And yet she had injured her knee and the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. She was in terrible pain. Was even beginning to beginning have questions about whether there's a real injury here. She was so frustrated and we said, Zoe, we wanna pray for you. So we laid our hands on her and prayed and all over the room with thousands of people, different people were in prayer circles praying. So we prayed for her. How does your knee feel now? Still hurts. Pray it again. How does your knee feel now? Still hurts. Pray it again. Take the brace off. See how it feels. No, it still hurts. Put the brace back on. Okay, let's get pray again. We prayed five times. And at this point, it's almost awkward, right? You're like, but God, you're really good. And we want to keep pressing in. We, want to, we don't want to just stop because you didn't do something the first time or the second time or even the third time. And so that last time, one of the gentlemen that was with us, Ted, said, hey, Zoe, what is it that you want Jesus to do for you? And he looked at him like the eye roll, the 16-year-old eye roll, like, Oh my gosh, Ted, can't believe you just said that. I want Jesus to heal me. And I believe when she said that, something shifted. And we laid hands on her one time and we said, okay, let's take your brace off. And she started squealing and laughing and jumping up and down and running around and Zoe was healed. And it was fun to hear the report this year, a year later, she's still healed. It wasn't just kind of a thing that was like, oh, that was kind of nice that God took away her pain. He restored whatever was wrong. So they shared this story in front of council and they said, this is, we're gonna just trust God for, an, for a gift of faith that we could believe that God is still doing this healing work today, just like for Zoe. 
So we all turned in prayer circles and I prayed for a guy who happens to be the, the Haitian national president of the Haitian churches in, uh, in the South. And it was a really great chance to minister to him and pray for him. And we didn't see anything physically happen with him, but I turned around and there is this short Vietnamese man who is jumping up and down and he's got a cane in his hand and there's two guys from Bakersfield, California who are completely bald and they look like, like Kojak 1 and Kojak 2 and there they are and they're just weeping and they're like uncontrollably and this little guy is like spinning around in circles with his cane in his hand and I'm thinking, this is, this is fun. And so I'm, I'm, now I'm watching, now I'm, I'm not praying anymore, I'm watching and the president who's sitting right in front of me just kind of saunters over and begins asking the question and this guy presents his cane to the president. The president says, okay, I'm going to take this cane. Meanwhile, there's another little commotion on the other side of what's going on and so I just, I can't really get up right now because I'm kind of broken and so I was kind of looking like this and I could see a wheelchair and I could see a kid who used to be in the wheelchair jumping up and down, praising the Lord and these people all crying and laughing and worshiping and I'm like, Wow, they're having way too much fun over there. What's going on over there? And so the president sauntered over and kind of asked some questions. And so a few minutes later, up the president comes to make the transition and said, you know, we asked the Lord to heal us and he's a good God. And so we've got this one gentleman here uh, who doesn't need a cane anymore. He's got his hand. And, and that, that guy's like doing like twirling in the front row. It's just so hilarious. I'm like, you go, man, you go. If you get healed, you can do whatever you want, right? He's like running laps around the whole thing. And, and the other kid who has some special needs, and you could really tell that his knees and his legs were, were very, you know, they weren't quite what you think were supposed to be straight and functional. He's just worshiping the Lord and, and swaying back and forth and standing up and not needing his wheelchair. And this is the kingdom of God. Not reserved just for some national council for some special people in Nashville, but available to us today. We don't have because we don't ask. That's what James says in his book. And so I just want to challenge you, Alliance family, that we are a Christ-centered Acts 1-8 family as a part of the Alliance, this larger Alliance. And we're called, this was founded on one of these key truths that God is still healing today. So perhaps you haven't seen healing because you've not asked and perhaps you haven't seen healing because you haven't kept on asking. So as we transition, I just want to encourage you that God is still moving. He's still working. He's still doing great things. And it's always fun when you get a front row seat where God is doing miracles. So having said that, we are going through a series called Lessons from Three Kings. And I want to start out talking about the fear of failure. Anybody ever had the fear of failure in the house? Raise your hand. Okay, someone else besides me. Oh, I feel so much better. Anybody in the house have the fear, ever experienced the fear of success? Raise your hand. Okay, just a few. Usually it's more that have the fear of failure than the fear of success. I, I read one pastor said, success is more difficult to handle than failure. Let me give you an example from my own life. I'm a musician. I've recorded some CDs. And my last CD I recorded and I was sending them out to these bookstores and radio stations, to uh, Christian radio stations to play. And all of a sudden, I just freaked out. <gasps> what if people really like this music? <gasps> what if they want me to travel all the time and do it? I don't have time to do that. <gasps> 
What if they want me to write a bunch of songs and I'll never be able to write a good song again? And what if they ask me to record, play the recording and I can't do it just like the recording? And by that time, I didn't have any more breath in me, hyperventilating because I was afraid that maybe I would succeed. Now that might sound silly to you, but I believe success is oftentimes more difficult to handle than failure. And our friend, King David, I think he did a lot better in his times of trials and tribulations than he does when he gets some success. And we're gonna see that as we continue to march through this series. And in our pursuit of success, do we strive and try to help God out? No, not you guys, you would never do that. Do you step on others and use them instead of empower and help them? Or do you bring the peace and the presence of God ready to wait on God? Certainly, these are the things I want to grow in. And as we're going through this, this, uh, this passage today in the beginning of 2 Samuel, um, we've learned so far in our series that if you're new, and I know some of you are new because I'm looking at your faces, I'm going, oh, I'm so glad to see you. And online, we're really glad you've joined us as well. So thank you for joining us. We haven't forgotten about you. You're important to us. But... King Saul, we preached through his life in 1 Samuel, bless his heart, as they say in Nashville. He struggled, and uh, we learned a lot of lessons from him. We've learned from the kingmaker, I'll call him, the prophet Samuel, who's the legendary prophet. I think one of the best prophets ever. And uh, we've learned a little bit from the prayer book called the Psalms, and later in the series we'll learn from the Proverbs as well, written by Solomon. Um, and so now this week, we venture into this book of 2 Samuel, and David is going to be anointed king of, over Judah, and yet he's tempted to help God out. But instead, he shows us what it looks like to be patient in prayer and wait for God's timing. Now, along the way, to, today we're going to see that David has a rival king that goes, goes after part of his kingdom. And it's a challenge, and yet, instead of looking for revenge or fighting back, David is a man of peace, refusing to take revenge. So today, we're going to find out that we don't need to really help God out, as we're tempted to do, but to consider how to walk as peacemakers who trust God in radical ways. So, little summary verse for David's life. Take a look at Psalm 78 verses 70 through 72. Kind of a little nutshell verse. I like it as we're getting into David's reign here. I just thought I'd drop it in. Verse 70, he chose, who's he? That's God. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. Let's stop right there. So David's life starts. He's a young man. He is working for his dad on the farm, out in the pasture. He's a shepherd. And so he is anointed, meaning that he got oil poured on his head by the Samuel the prophet, the kingmaker, at about maybe age 15, we think. So here he is, a shepherd. And yet, verse 71 tells us, he goes from tending the sheep, he br God brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them, the people of Israel, with integrity of heart, and skillful hands, he led them. So David here, he is a 15-year-old. You're going to be the next king, Saul whisper, Samuel whispers in his ear. 
And yet he waits for a couple years and he gets the opportunity of a lifetime to throw rocks at a giant and be a hero and he becomes a hero. And yet not long after that, he gets on Saul's bad side and Saul is a spear thrower. And David is the one you want on your dodgeball team. He dodges every single spear that comes his way. And yet he ends up going on the run for some years away from Saul who tries to kill him. And yet David, in his leadership, leads with integrity of heart and skillful hands. Integrity of heart. He's wholehearted. He walks in good character. For those of us who aspire to leadership or our parents or are leading in our business, in the schools, on sports teams, or even in the theater, leadership comes down to character. And character is critical. But just character is not enough to make a kingdom impact. I believe this second part, he led them with skillful hands. He was actually skilled at what he did. Those two things, I think, are critical for us as we try to make a kingdom impact on our world, whether it's with our actual neighbors, with our work neighbors, or with our city neighbors. Loving our neighbors often looks like doing something well. So integrity of heart and skillful hands. So whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, the New Testament says. Here's another leadership axiom here, buried in here. God takes time in preparing us for future assignments. Oftentimes, when we think we're ready for promotion, God's actually still got some work to do. Have you ever been chomping at the bit saying, why, why aren't you letting me... Fill in the blank. Oftentimes it's because God's not released you yet because he's still doing a work to prepare you. And without doing that work inside us, that integrity of heart, walking into any assignment, leadership or task, relational, whatnot, without character, we've seen that everything folds. So, there's five chapters I'm just going to give you highlights from today because if I preached through all five chapters, y'all would never go home today. So I gave you icons, made them up myself. Proud of myself for that. All right. Chapter one, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Saul and, da and Jonathan die. And instead of David saying, it's about time, I could now grab the, the, the crown and sit on the throne and lead like Samuel said. No, he laments and he writes a song and he invites the whole nation into thanking God for these men of God that were given, the anointed. So he just, man after God's own heart. I love that about him. He laments. That's chapter one. Chapter two, what we're going to see right out of the gate, he prays first. Chapter three, we're going to see war. That's all you need to know about it. Chapter four, war leads to death. Death leads to transition and kingship for David, not only over one tribe, but all tribes. So let's jump right in. I'm going to give you highlights. Here we go. You ready? I love the Bible. Second Samuel chapter two. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there or you can look at the screen. First one, in the course of time, 
David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked God. The Lord said, go up. David asked, well, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So it's almost too subtle. After watching Saul's life for quite a while, and Saul just is driving the struggle bus. He's having a real hard time understanding. You ask God first. David models right out of the gate. Yes, I've got a clear runway to the kingship, but I'm not moving until you tell me to move, God. The man after God's own heart says, you pray first and ask for direction and guidance. David really is asking, is it time for me to be king, God? Is this it? It sure seems like it because the last guy just died. But I don't want to get ahead of you, God, even in the things that you've promised. Why? Because most of the time when we misstep, it's oftentimes a timing issue, not a direction issue. So do you pray? Application question. Do you pray first before you move out? Or do you simply decide what to do and ask God to bless what you're doing? If things aren't going so well, the question you might need to ask God is, uh, was this something you wanted me to do or did I get out ahead of you? God allows U-turns and course corrections and recalculating. But I love David because right out of the gate, he asks God a question. And you notice he's bold enough to ask a secondary question. Oftentimes, God hides so that we will seek him. And if we seek him, we, he will be found by us when we seek him with all our heart, Jeremiah 29 says. So he asks, he asks, okay, this is what we're doing. We're going up to Hebron. Great. Who goes with him? Verse two. So David went up there with his two wives, count them, two wives. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. So David's only got two wives here. Take note of that. That's going to be important at the end of this message. And his men are loyal to him. These are the same guys that were in the cave that were so frustrated and almost killed him after Ziklag was sacked and got their families back and they're still with him. Verse four. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So he's anointed king over one of the 12 tribes. Now David has previously sent gifts to the cities of Judah in the last few chapters. He's been fighting the battle, battles against the enemies of Judah in the south, all the while telling the Philistine king that he's fighting, fighting the, the good guys, but he's really not. So Judah has a front row seat for David running away from Saul. But why not all Israel? Why are we starting with one, with, with only one tribe? What's the deal here? Verse eight. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, he's the commander of the Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth. Say that eight times fast. Son of Saul, it's the only son I think that survived the battle, was Ishbosheth, and brought him over to Menahim and made him king over all these places, all Israel. In other words, the other 11 tribes, we're going to install this dude, he's going to be the king. 
Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became the king over Israel, and he reigned for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. So here's Ishbosheth. He gets an assist by Abner. Abner's a smooth talking criminal. He always is trying to figure out the angle so he will succeed. You're going to see that. Verse 11. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So David starts out with one tribe, not in Jerusalem, but in Hebron. Jerusalem still belongs to the Jebusites, by the way. Nobody's conquered that. Even since the Israelites have come in, nobody's conquered that because it's been impenetrable. It sits on that, that jagged edge of that hill. It's too hard. It's got walls. So David is starting out. One tribe, seven and a half years, serving in Hebron. Well, so Ishbosheth, if that was my name, I would change it. Once again, there's somebody that's opposing David. It's another person in the way. It's another roadblock to David finally taking what's his that's been promised to him. And he's 10 years older than David. And he's his son-in-law. He would have known. They would have known each other from the palace in the old days. And remember, David made a covenant with Saul. The very last time he saw Saul, Saul said, promise me you will be kind to my family and my, and my successors. So David's in a pickle. What's he going to do? Is he going to trust God that God's promise really was that he was going to be the king? And Ishbosheth is a weak leader. We see it in the account. He's afraid of Abner, his military general. And then David has his own military general. His name is Joab. I know this is a lot of names, but two military generals. And they go at it. They like pick six guys a piece and they go meet at this lake and they fight and all the guys die. And it's just this big battle afterwards. It's like, guys, how did you think that was going to work out really well for you? And while... Abner and Joab are engaging in these bloody battles. David has this uncanny, quiet trust. Because God is shaping him for a reign of all of Israel by small beginnings. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. And he's shaping him and teaching him just as he shaped him and taught him as a shepherd. Now he's shaping him, teaching him with one tribe. And eventually this will lead to the whole of Israel. God is shaping us. He's always shaping us for what's next. He's giving you experience, experiences, letting you go through trials, walking with you in dark places so that you'll be ready for the next challenge, the next thing. And David is being shaped, but he's also being quiet and peaceful and waiting on God. I don't know about you, but it's really easy to get bored at the waiting room and just want to go. Where have you been fighting for your rights or you feel like you're entitled to something or God promised something and you just want to help God out? You just want to speed things up. You want to take things into your own hands. You want to take the bull by the horns. And then, question, it's another spear thrower potentially. Great, we went from Saul to Saul's son. Now the next thing that's going to happen is he's going to be throwing spears at David. I want to introduce you to this book. Um, it's a book that I had in my mind, in my heart, um, when, when I, I planned this series. 
actually quite a, quite a while back. It was almost a year ago we started planning this series. But um, this book is called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. It's a classic. It's short chapters for those of you who are short fans of short chapters. It tells the story of Saul, David, and Absalom, one of David's sons, who basically tries to overthrow David. It talks about what you do when someone's throwing spears at you. Because we all have people who throw spears at us. It could be a boss, it could be a landlord, a manager, even a political figure, and we want to strike back, we want to hit back, we want to, we want to pick up the spear and throw it at them. We want to get revenge. We don't want to trust God with his timing or his justice. And Edwards does a beautiful job devotionally going through this. So I highly recommend this. If you're one that feels like, man, I don't know how to follow this leader. I don't know how to continue to have relationship with my mom, my dad, my grandmother, my uncle, the person who runs our business, what, whoever it is. Let me just read to you one page from Gene Edwards' book um, about this. Unlike anyone else in spear-throwing history, David did not know what to do when a spear was thrown at him. He did not throw Saul's spears back at him, nor did he make any spears of his own and throw them. Something was different about David. All he did was dodge spears. What can a man, especially a young man, do when the king decides to use him for target practice? What if the young man decides not to return the compliment? First of all, he must pretend he cannot see spears, even when they are coming straight at him. And second, he must learn how to duck very quickly. And last, he must pretend that nothing happened. You can easily tell when someone has been hit by a spear. It turns to deep shade of bitter. David never got hit. Gradually, he learned a very well-kept secret. He discovered three things that prevented him from ever being hit. Here's your three things. You ready? Those of you who are, if you feel like your target practice. One, never learn anything about the fashionable, easily mastered art of spear throwing. Don't even learn about it. Two, stay out of the company of all spear throwers. Don't hang out with those guys. Three, keep your mouth tightly closed. In this way, spears will never touch you, even when they pierce your heart. This is incredibly rich. So if you're looking for your next read, there you go. So that wraps up chapter two. It's really kind of the longest one of the five. Well, David gets installed. He's having some success, but all is not well because the next chapter is all about war. 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Remember this stronger and stronger phrase that's going to come back at the end. Verse 2. By the way, along the way, you need to know what's going on with David. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn, his secondborn, his thirdborn, his fourthborn, his fifthborn, his sixthborn. All the way through chat, verse 5. Names that I probably can't even say, so I'm not going to try. What's the point? Why are we talking about sons? Because there's six children. Good job, David. With six wives. Uh-oh. 
Why is this an uh-oh besides the fact that I don't know what I would do with six wives? Because this is an absolute prohibition of what Moses said in Deuteronomy about someday you're going to have a king and this is the stuff he's got to do and not do. <gasps> no! He, the king, must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Dang. David leads with integrity of heart to about age 50. And then things begin to unravel. And this is the beginning of the unraveling because he doesn't follow what God says. Well, we're back to war because it's going to add war to his house, by the way. That's the theme. So what's going on here? Verse six, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, that's the general for Ishbosheth, had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. I gotta make sure what's in it for me. Come on. So he's self-seeking, he's manipulative, he's a man of war, he wants power. Ishbosheth is nervous and he's jealous of his general Abner and he accuses him of sleeping with one of his father's concubines. And Abner says this in verse 9, and he's actually talking himself, so it's weird in the Bible. Sometimes they speak third person. It's weird. But may God deal with me, Abner, be it ever so severely if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on an oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. What's he saying? He's going, uh, God made a promise and I'm going to make sure that David becomes the king that he's supposed to be. Oh, and by the way, in fear, inferring Ishbosheth, you're not going to be. Abner is a smooth talker. And he sends word to David, hey, I can make an arrangement where you can get the other 11 tribes. And David says, I'm interested, but I got one condition. Give me my wife back. His first wife, by the way, six is apparently not enough for him. His first wife, Michael, the Saul's daughter who was given to him, was taken away from him when he was on the run from Saul, given to another guy. David says, uh, get her back to me. We can talk about a, a unified kingdom. So make sure that drag poor, poor Michael's husband is like weeping behind her. And finally Abner says, go home, get out of here. And I think Michael had the throne larger in her eyes and being the queen larger in her eyes than anything else. But so that's what David wants. Meanwhile, Abner is smooth talking the elders of Israel about making David the king. He uses spiritual language that's real sticky and manipulative. And just because something spiritual in religious and language doesn't mean it's authentic, good, genuine from God. And he's using spiritual re reasoning to manipulate them. By the way, we've seen this with Christian leaders and we're working so hard to reverse the reputation because it's been messed up so bad. And so Abner personally talks with the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Well, that's Saul's people. So you got to make sure you, you work it all out. Then he takes 20 men and goes to talk to David and goes, let's make this deal. Let's, let's work it out. And David is so kind. Remember, Abner for years was with Saul trying to kill David. Don't you think David was like, oh, this is my time. All right, off with his head. Whoop. Nope. He's so kind to him. He serves this huge feast. Abner leaves in peace. Joab shows up. Joab's... David's general, he's the man of war. He goes, what? He left in peace? You didn't kill him? So he calls him back. 
knifes him in the street, kills him. Abner dies. Verse 28, later when David heard about this murder, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. Wait a second. This is a guy that you'd want to kill, right? Don't you want to take revenge, David? No. Revenge is mine, says the Lord. And David knows it. So in the following verses, he takes Abner's body. He prepares it for burial. He buries him. He laments him. He honors him. Verse 36, all the people took note and were well, and were pleased. Indeed, everything that the king did pleased them. In other words, mourning Abner and honoring your enemy, loving your enemy, pleased them. So on that day, all the people and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. And the king said to his men, do you not realize that a prince and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? So David knows that Abner is not perfect. He's been a foe. But David realizes that Abner carries the image of God. David understands, even though he's been a man of war, that life is precious. And I have to insert my favorite Gandalf quote here from the Lord of the Rings. Many that live deserve death and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. I think our culture that we're swimming in these days is happy to deal out death and judgment or cancellation or whatever you want to call it. If you don't agree with me, if you don't do the right thing, if you don't... Sat on an airplane, had about a three-hour conversation with someone who was so heartbroken because they said, my list of friends went like this in the last year because I can't agree with anybody. It's a lot of canceling. There's a lot of, a lot of judgment, a lot of trying to push away. And in this case, David is a man of peace. He brings peace and trusting God. He doesn't take things in his own hands. He doesn't try to help God out. Second Samuel chapter four, death. This is a short one. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost his courage and all Israel became alarmed. Uh-oh, our war guy, he just died. This is not good. And he's right. Why? Because in verses five through seven, uh, well, they had gone into the house, these two thugs. They went into the house while Ishbosheth was lying on the bed in his bedroom. They stabbed him. They killed him. They cut off his head. Yeah, that's rated R. I get it. And taking, taking the head with them, they traveled all, all the way by night by Arabah. And verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. Look at this trophy. And said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. They're thinking, I'm going to get a reward for this. And this day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. Well, David reminds them, oh, the last guy that came to me and said that Jonathan and, Dave and Saul were dead and gave me their, their crown. Yeah, I killed that guy. And we're going to kill you too. Uh, off of their heads. And away they go. Those guys get eliminated. The death. It's, it's a little ugly. But David doesn't celebrate the death of this rival king that stands in the way. He mourns and buries Ishbosheth. And he follows through on his covenant with Saul not to harm his descendants. I love the fact that this integrity of heart that David walks in makes people trust him. 
and everyone is seeing his behavior and moving toward him. And when we love, when we forgive, when we walk in the spirit, people see it, people know it, they're attracted and they wanna see who this God is that we serve. Last chapter, chapter five. He becomes the king. Verse one, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. So all the tribes, not just Judah, now we got them all. And why are they saying we are your own flesh and blood? Well, they're remembering Deuteronomy 17. Let's go back to it again. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, you've taken possession of it and settled in it, kind of, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. So they're going, hey, you qualify. We've read Deuteronomy 17. Maybe Saul didn't, but we have. And that's what we, you know, this, this, you check, got that. It's on the resume. Verse two. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. In other words, he might have been on the throne, but dude, you were doing the work. We were following you. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. So now we're going to geek out on Hebrew for just a minute because... We just can't read the Old Testament without talking about the Hebrew a little bit, shall we? So what's going on here? In the past, while king was the Melech, that's the king who reigns over us, you were the one who was leading us. And God said to you, you will become their ruler. Different word for king. It's Nagid. This word Nagid is exactly what Samuel, the prophet, says as he anoints Saul king. He says, and you will be the nugget over these people. You will be the ruler. You will be the prince who is under the authority of God. God's still your king. You're going to be the prince ruler. And quickly the people say, great, thanks for our Melech. Appreciate it. He's going to be our guy. Here's the people now after having the whole Saul experience and they flip it on its head and says, we want you to be our nugget. We don't want a Melech. We've already seen what that looks like. It's self-serving. It's dangerous. People get killed. We don't want a Melech. We want someone who's a man after God's own heart. And we know God's spoken to you. And so this idea of shepherding God's people. Do you remember in the verse that we started with that David shepherded the sheep and then became the shepherd of people? I think these two things came together. And maybe sometime around this time in the beginning of his reign, he wrote these words that you've heard before. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside quiet waters and he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's Psalm 23. Probably David's most 
famous and well-known songs about this very concept, that he was trained to shepherd people by shepherding sheep. And verse three, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a, a, a covenant, a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed King David king over Israel. Now, what kind of party was this? Well, we've got, in the Old Testament, we've got some of these books that actually comment on the narrative. Like, oh, by the way, this is what's going on there. First Chronicles is one of those books. Maybe you've never read First Chronicles before. But in First Chronicles 12, it says this. It, it fills in some of the gaps. I love that. And, and it lists all of the numbers of, of people, of men that came to this big feast. All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. By the way, I did the math on my calculator. 340,000. That's a lot. And they came to Hebron, fully determined to make David king over all Israel. All the rest of the Israelites were also of one mind to make David the king. Verse 39, the men spent three days there with David, eating and drinking for their families had supplied provisions for them. Interesting, the writer here goes, just in case you don't think that many people came to the party, yeah, we, we would have had a catering problem. They brought their own food, okay? Verse 40, also their neighbors from as far away as Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys and camels and mules and oxen. There were plentiful supplies and there was joy in Israel. And David, how old was he? Verse four tells us, 30 years old when he became king. And he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned in, over Judah seven and a half years. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So, David is at the height of his success. They've been singing songs about him for a long time, and now all of a sudden, he's front and center. And what does he do? Verse 6, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the ones who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off, they thought. David cannot get in here. Verse 7, nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. So David takes over this space, which is a perfect political city. It's between Judah and all of the northern kingdoms. It's never been conquered by the Israelites. So it's another victory for the Israelites. And it's a place where not only is David enthroned as king, but God is once again enthroned as king. And we're going to see that in the next chapter. Verse 10, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. That's the NIV. Underneath the line, I gave you the message translation. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite people on the planet. He's got a special mansion in heaven, I'm sure. He translates it this way. David proceeded with a longer stride and a larger embrace since the God of angel armies was with him. Peterson is giving a nod to the Hebrew, which talks about walking well. I'll call it walking gooder. And that the idea is that by conquering Jerusalem and, and, and spread, stretching out, he was lengthening his stride. But by gathering all Israel, he was enlarged in his embrace. 
I think when we walk in the spirit and move more and more into maturity, it leads to generosity. And I think this lengthening stride and enlarged embrace has to do with a generosity of heart by this king. Second to last verse, verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. It wasn't about him. It was going to be about his people. It was about him being a servant king. And he understood who he was. He understood what his identity was, which is so critical for us to understand what our identity as sons and daughters, princes and princesses of a king But just in case you thought I was going to leave you on a high note. Success sometimes is harder to deal with than failure. And in this last verse, verse 13, after he left Hebron, he moves to the city of the great king Zion, Jerusalem. David took on more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and had more sons and daughters that were born to him. It's interesting here, usually you see wives and concubines. Concubines are like this extra group of women in your harem kind of thing. But that's reversed. And you see concubines and wives. David is using his power, authority, position. And he's beginning to gratify himself instead of actually do what that last verse said. And that is to be exalted in his kingdom for the sake of his people, it became for his own sake. And a few weeks from now, we'll see the full-scale meltdown for David. And from about age 50 on, his struggle really is in his leadership of his family. And it starts here, though. It starts here with multiple wives and a whole slew of children and the inability or the refusal to actually shepherd, lead, discipline and handle issues in his family, which we all can probably relate to. So as we close, just a couple questions for you. David wasn't rushing to grab the crown, and I think he had the right to, but he waited for God. He waited for God's timing. Is there an area where you feel like you're rushing to grab something and, and to take hold of something that maybe the Lord's saying, it's time to wait on me? that I'm still doing a shaping work in you to prepare you for this. And David showed great respect for the lives of others. Even though he's a man of war, we see him show great respect for human life. And I don't know if there's a group of people that you have a difficult time respecting. They may be the spear throwers in your life. There may be even a group of people that you're prejudiced against either by ethnicity or for political things or ideology or theology. I wonder what it looks like for you to bring peace to those places instead of being tempted to pick up a spear yourself. Lastly, What does it look like for you to reflect the king? In this case, it was David. But I'm thinking about the son of David, Jesus, in your life. And 
want to challenge you. As I was preaching earlier, one of our young people made this little picture and says, where shall I go? The question that David is asking at the very beginning of this passage. And I think this is the question that we need to constantly be asking God. If we're going to be kingdom people, if we're going to reflect his kingdom, there needs to be a sense of we pray first, we seek God first, and then we're willing to wait for him. That we're not going to go grab things, that we're not going to run ahead, but we're going to actually partner with God. So Jesus, you have great things for us. You've promised us great things. And yet this world is filled with all sorts of trouble. And oftentimes we try to take things into our own hands. And so we repent of asking you to bless our ideas and we embrace the practice of waiting on you, seeking you, asking you questions, walking together with others and reflecting your kingdom. Thank you for David, for his example, for these accounts that are so rich. I pray that you would speak to our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for coming. It sure is more fun to talk to people than green pews. And um, if, you're, if you're just kind of coming back to church, welcome back. Or if you haven't yet come back to church, you're on the stream, no one's going to make you feel guilty for not being here. No one's going to ask you any questions. We're all kind of new back. So it's like a big reset. So welcome. Glad you're here. Come back and see us next week, either on the stream or in the house. We've got prayer in the chapel afterwards. Make sure you grab your trash. Would you stand? Let me just pray a blessing over you. Jesus, I pray a blessing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just ask for an open heaven in our lives this week. God, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and empower us to love and to walk in your gifts, to give away the gifts that you have, that, that our maturity would translate into generosity. God, that we would take our eyes off ourselves and we wouldn't live for our own sake, but for your sake, you are the king and we want to live for the kingdom. And so I pray a blessing over this family far and wide on the stream, as well as in the house, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks for coming.